This Restorative Justice Life is a production of Amplify RJ. Follow us on all social media platforms at Amplify RJ or sign up for our email list to stay up to date on everything we have going on. And to get the most involved, join our free Mighty Networks community to get connected with others living this restorative justice life all over the world. As far as this podcast goes, make sure you're subscribed, leave our rating and review, and share with a friend to help us further amplify this work. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to This Restorative Justice Life, the podcast that explores how the philosophy, practices, and values of restorative justice apply to our everyday lives. I'm your host, David Ryan Barcega Castro-Harris, all five names for the ancestors, and I'm the founder of Amplify RJ. On this podcast, I talk with RJ practitioners, circle keepers, and others doing this work about how this way of being has impacted their lives. Welcome to This Restorative Justice Life. Who are you? Oh, geez. I am the son of Carl and Mary Jane, the husband of Rick, the doggy daddy of Maggie, the uh, cute, adorable American Eskimo, and I'm a trauma-informed restorative practitioner. Mm-hmm. Who are you? I would also say I'm the survivor of pretty significant traumas. Okay. And so I count that as part of my identity as a gay man. I'm a person who grew up and faced bullying, child abuse, two violent anti-gay hate crimes. I'm, I'm a survivor of trauma and, and a product of post-traumatic growth. Who are you? Wow. gets harder on the third time. I would say I'm also struggler. Like I, I struggle from the things I've been through, yet... I don't ever seem to lose hope. Who are you? That guy on your podcast. I'm this guy people have been asking a lot of questions about trauma and restorative justice. I'm an author who likes to write and has long used writing as a way for me to find a home for my thoughts. And so um, I've written a book and I'm in the process of writing two more. (laughs) Who are you? People seem to like my answers, even if they're right or wrong or good or bad. I seem to be saying something people like, and so I keep doing it. (laughs) Who are you? Wow, it gets really hard. I'm I'm an out, proud, happy gay man, which I think is in today's world... I used to think that was getting to be less of a big deal until places like Florida and Texas have, have, and, and other states are trying to pass these don't say gay bills. And so I feel like saying it as much as possible. <laughs> I'm going to say gay, 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 gay over and over and until people get upset. And then I'm just going to say it some more. Finally, for, for now, who are you? Wow. I hope that I'm a change maker for the right direction, I hope. Well, I already know that you are, and you are so many things. We're going to get to the intersections of many of those when we come back right after this. 
folks, I'm Elise, your producer, and today we are welcoming Joe Brummer to the podcast. Joe has actively helped schools implement peer meditation programs and school-wide restorative practices, as well as becoming a private consultant to also create trauma-informed approaches based on his own personal healing journey in response to anti-gay hate crimes. Joe can say it best, so let's get right back into it. Welcome back, Joe, and may I say happy Pride, although it's not July at the time this is being aired. Gay, 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 gay. <laughs> happy Pride. It's good to <laughs> be you. here with you in the middle of Pride Month. It's always also a good start with a check-in, so to the fullest extent that you want to answer the question on these airwaves in this time, this place, how are you? I am feeling energized. I'm getting on a plane tomorrow morning. Or tomorrow afternoon, I'm getting on a plane to go into Nashville, Tennessee for the Trauma-Informed Educators Network Conference, where I get to present with a bunch of really cool people and meet with a bunch of cool people. And so I'm just excited, wanting to see old friends like Matt Portel and and, and the sort of, you know, the Trauma-Informed Educators Network that I've come to love and know. So I'm, I'm feeling pretty energized. And looking yeah. forward, I'm not looking forward to getting on a plane, you know, for some, even though I've had all, you know, all four shots, what is it, the, the initial shots, the booster shot, and then I just got another booster shot, still making me a little nervous to get on a plane, <laughs> but all right, whatever, we're doing it. You know, the calculated wish, risks we take to share this yeah. work and, you know, we'll make sure to plug the book now and multiple times through your framework for building a trauma-informed restorative school is a large part of why we have you on the podcast. And, you know, on these airwaves, most of the time people are talking about restorative justice, restorative practices, indigenous peacemaking, sometimes transformative justice even, but we haven't yet had someone bring this trauma-informed lens very specifically. And I know, you know, many restorative practitioners say like, oh, okay, well, restorative justice is inherently trauma-informed. And you're like, no, and we're gonna talk about some of the nuances of those practices. But before we get into all of that, you've been doing this work for a long time, longer than you've even known the words restorative justice. So in your own words, how did this get started for you? You know what? I don't actually, I think that's funny that you should say it, longer than I've even known the words restorative justice. I mean, even when I was a kid, you know, I was a Beatles fan, listening to John Lennon say, I'll stay in bed for peace, you know? So I had this kind of lens that was like, peace is possible. Like I was, I, I got that from music. I, I got that from being a little rock and roll kid. And I grew up with parents that listened to, you know, basically peace protest music, like Peter, Paul and Mary and and Bob Dylan. And so some of that was just ingrained in me that this idea of peace. And then as I got older, you know, I, I don't know, I ended up getting into work that I didn't plan to. Like as a, as a kid, you know, you always think like you're going to be whatever it is you set out to be as a kid, which for me was a musician. You know, I, I wanted to be, you know, rock and roll band guy that wrote music and played music, which I still do. Just that took second. It took a back burner to the work I do now. And I think the turning point for me, the turning point came after 2000. I was gay bashed for the second time and this time I think my anger turned more into I have to do something 
Like I can't sit around and not do something. I just had to figure out what that was. <laughs> and somehow all these like, you know, the stars align, the universe aligns, and the next thing you know, you know, the associate director at a community mediation center, I'm doing mediations in courtrooms, I'm doing restorative justice. I end up in a, a three-day victim offender mediation training with VOMA, which I th think you and I have talked about before. I, I'm not even sure VOMA exists anymore. If they do, it's really small. But I took this three-day, you know, restorative justice training and I was introduced to this concept. and. It just worked for me. But at the same time, I was also working in mental health and learning about trauma. And I still hadn't put these things together yet. But along the line of like doing the restorative justice work, I started wondering like, we're not seeing this through this lens of trauma and how it impacts everything. And so I, I started trying to figure out like, why are the people who are doing restorative justice work not talking about trauma? Why are the people who are doing trauma-informed schools work not talking about restorative justice? And so I had this sort of burning desire to find a way to bring these two worlds together. Yeah. And now here I am. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. And I think, you know, for the purposes of this conversation, lots of people approach these words, these frameworks in different ways. And sometimes at the end of the podcast, we ask people to give their definition of restorative justice. I think it might be helpful right now just to give a framing for the way that we're talking about these terms, both trauma-informed and restorative justice. How do you conceptualize those frameworks now in 2022? Yeah. And I like the word conceptualize more than I like define. And so I, I appreciate that question. I think for me, which I think is hard for some folks, the terms nonviolence, the term restorative justice, the term trauma-informed care, these all mean the same things to me. Like they're part of the same big puzzle of how do we live out our values, right? How do we take care of other humans, honor their humanity, and still hold them accountable when things don't go well. And so for me, the, the sort of framework of all of this is to say, and, and I don't, and, 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 you know, we covered this earlier, I think sometimes that, you know, many people think that restorative justice work is inherently trauma-informed. And, and I'm one of those people that doesn't believe that's true. Like nothing can be inherently trauma-informed unless it acknowledges how our nervous systems work, how our, our brains and our fight or flight mechanisms work. And if we're not talking about that very explicitly, I have a really hard time believing that anybody's work could be inherently trauma-informed. And yeah. so I think the indigenous lens that we put on restorative justice, like this current movement. I think indigenous folks had an understanding of trauma, especially, you know, the Maori people, like they had inherently understandings that rhythm soothed us, that relationships soothed us, that reciprocity heals us. That got lost in our current movement. And so now I think people, you know, people just say, oh, I'm getting in a circle, so it's restorative. But you can get in a circle and yell at people. <laughs> that doesn't make it restorative. Like what makes these things restorative, trauma-informed, is is how we show up. And so I think if I were to sum up this this idea 
trauma-informed restorative practices are how we show up and how we co-regulate with each other's nervous systems very intentionally. You know, I, I borrow a line, I, I did a, a training this morning with my buddy Justin Carbonella from Middletown, Connecticut. And uh, he always says that restorative justice is about doing good things on purpose. There are no happy accidents that we, we do this work with intentionality. But in order to do that, you have to have a focus on not what's wrong with people, but what happened to them. You know, what are the things we've been through that put us where we are so that we offer that grace and understanding and empathy to people, regardless what they've done, so we can see their humanity. I wanted to highlight a couple of things and we're going to, you know, zero in and like get into the, get into the details. You talked about trauma and, you know, when people say trauma, oftentimes they're talking about a traumatic event, right? A traumatic stressor, but like you defined it very differently. We talked about like the ways that neural pathways like adapt to deal with those stressors. Do you want to like give a little bit more context to what we mean by being trauma-informed, trauma-responsive, trauma... Trauma-sensitive. Trauma yeah, yeah. So it's, it's probably helpful to just start off with, like, what is trauma? Yeah. And, and you're right. People think of trauma as the events we go through, but it's not. It's how our bodies respond to those events and how our bodies hold that. And it literally is a whole body experience. And so I think SAMHSA's three E's are a great first step at, like, really just again, conceptualizing what does it mean? Because two people can go through the same events and only one of them walk away with symptoms of trauma, anxiety, depression, or, you know, reoccurring thoughts of the event. And the other person walks away and was like, you know, that was Tuesday. <laughs> like, what happened? And so the three E's from SAMHSA are helpful that say it's the event, the experience, and the effects. And so, again, two of us can be at the same event, but have completely different experiences. Therefore, there's going to be different impacts, you know, a, a different effect. And so to be trauma-informed is to, one, to be aware that we are the products of every experience we've ever had. And that every experience we've had has created a template for us about the world that it's either a safe place to be or it's not such a safe place to be. And when we are trauma-informed, we're taking consideration of the things people may or may not have gone through. Because trauma is just as much about what doesn't happen to us as what does. And so, you know, for instance, neglect. And so maybe you went through some horrible experiences or maybe some things that were supposed to happen for you just didn't, like love and care from an adult or attachment or, or exposure to love. And those things shape who we are. When we can start to see the world through that lens of it's not what's wrong with you, it's what happened to you, you know, mm -hmm. which is, uh, of course, from... You know, it's a, a nod and a wink to Sandra Bloom and her sanctuary model that was created back in, in, in the early 90s and at Northwestern Hospital. And it, 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 so this idea of being trauma sensitive, being trauma aware is that we've set up 
it, it means a couple of things. It means that one, we can recognize in other people that where they are in the world right now might be based on where they've been. But also how we set up an environment can e either be a safe space for someone or full of evocative cues that set off their nervous system into fight, flight, freeze, or faint. And are we mindful when we show up of how we show up, what we mean, who we are, and what we bring to the table? And that might be different for other people who experience us than it is for us. So being trauma-informed is being aware that I'm... I'm a five foot three white guy, <laughs> you know? And, and I know when I show up in a space, regardless who I am or what I think of myself, I show up as a five foot three white male. And I, that's not in my control. That's just the world. And that how I think I'm showing up and how I'm actually showing up aren't the same thing. And so to be trauma informed is to be empathic to not only how I think I'm showing up, but to how other people think I'm showing up. And sometimes that's out of our hands. Like we, we can't always control some of those things, especially for people who've been exposed to trauma in their life. Because we have these reflexive responses to the world and the evocative cues, otherwise known as quote unquote triggers, which I'm trying to personally get rid of that word out of my language. Activations. Yeah, activations. But I know that people are used to the word trigger, and so I don't want to confuse anyone. But but it is a reference to a gun, and somehow thinking restorative and trauma-informed in guns doesn't all seem to add up for me. And so I'm trying to get rid of the word trigger. I, it still ends up, you know, being part of the, the language because it's part of, you know, this this work. People are just used to it. And so I think the, I know, the short answer is to be trauma-informed is to be empathic to both how other people experience us but to be conscious of the experiences that they may have had that we just don't know about, you know? To, to treat everyone with the possibility that the days before we met them weren't good. Dang, Joe, I thought all I had to do is show up in a restorative circle and ask what happened, who was impacted and how, and how do we make things right? Whose responsibility is it to, you know, meet yeah. these needs? what you know bringing this lens of trauma and you know i do think i was reductive in my presentation like oh this is just a restorative process where we're going to ask these questions and everybody's yeah. going to have a happy ending and get their needs met like it, of course it's more nuanced than that and everyone who calls themselves a restorative practitioner should know that right we do ask questions that do get to some of those root causes but you don't always have the analysis of you know, who am I showing up into this space? How is that impacting others? Like the way that you show up and the way that I show up as a six one, like a, a black Filipino, you know, like is very different. And it's gonna be a very different impact in the different contexts that we both traffic in, whether that is a suburban school setting that's predominantly white or if it's in an urban school setting where the students like look a lot more like me, right? And even that, just our presentation doesn't really get to like the full intersection of like how we're showing up in the, the space. The, there's so much more nuance that I would love to get into. I wanna zoom back a little bit, right? Because we kind of blitzed through like, you had these violent events happen to you and you're like, I need to do something. And that, like now you're at this, I will, 
I'm going to say enlightened, but like on the journey way of <laughs> thinking about healing at the intersection of restorative justice and trauma informed, but that wasn't always where it started. You talked about, you know, mediation being a place that was really a home for you, like helped you like follow that curiosity, like you were able to make a difference there. What was that experience like without this lens at the time? I think in some respects I had the lens, but I didn't know it. Mm-hmm. But there are other pieces of that, I think too, that, you know, looking back, you know, when I, when I first started, I volunteered for a local community mediation center in Rhode Island. And I would go, you know, frequently to court where we had this tiny little room that was right outside the courtroom. You know, you walked outside the courtroom and there was this little conferencing room that was really meant for lawyers to sit with their clients. But we borrowed that room and had a little round table. And I always sat myself at the door because I wanted wanted to be able to get out of that room if I had to, but I'm also a trauma survivor. So I wasn't going to think about that. I was just going to do it not knowing what I was doing. Mm -hmm. But that meant the people that I invited into the space didn't get that opportunity. That meant I put them at the other side of the table in a six by six room where they can't escape. (laughs) Well, there's nothing trauma informed about that. (laughs) Like I'm literally locking you into a room And so I think there's so many things, there's so many questions, there are so many ways I would have carried myself differently had I followed what I call in my book, universal precautions, right? So in the medical field and, you know, every educator has probably taken a a training on bloodborne pathogens where we have this conversation. It's funny to have this conversation, you know, as we come out of the end of a pandemic where, you know, we don't know who has a passable disease like a cold or a flu or, or whatever it may be. So we wear masks, we wash our hands, we wear gowns, surgeons, you know, you know, do all these things to, you know, a, a big face mask. These are all the precautions we take so that we do not take a disease and spread it to more people. So that we don't have a disease and pass it to someone who's vulnerable. You know, during this whole you know, we, we did, this is what we all just lived through. Let's take as many precautions as possible. But what if we did that exact same thing, except let's not make the premise a disease, let's make it the impacts of trauma. What if there were just some things we did universally because we know that people who have experienced trauma may be vulnerable to these things like touch, eye contact, loud noises, yelling. What if we just made some universal standard precautions so that we don't have evocative cues and triggers, for a lack of a better word, of people's nervous systems? So what if we just made it a, a, a universal precaution not to touch people without asking? Not even shaking their hand without just saying, can I shake your hand? So that, because for some people who've experienced trauma, touch is really, uncomfortable and if if not really putting them into fight or flight well what if how how many times do people put their hand on a student's shoulder and they mean it very lovingly that doesn't matter to a person who's been experiencing trauma and so when i look back at me as a mediator you know back in 2008 when i first started this work 2007 whatever it may have been you know 
I'm, there, I'm sure there were a ton of things that I were doing that were just not considered trauma-informed, like giving transparency, predictability. And those are the things that changed in my practice as I went on as a mediator. I became very transparent in my process. I was always telling my clients in the mediation, here's what we're doing, here's why we're doing it. Versus in the back of my mind, I've got a strategy I'm following and I'm just following it and I'm not telling anybody what I'm doing. Now, I won't say I don't do that once in a while because it's the best move. Sometimes that is the best move. But to the greatest extent possible, I give people predictability, safety, transparency, all the things that I know a person who's experienced trauma would appreciate because it lets them feel calmer and safer. Yeah. And And with safety, safety is important to a brain and a nervous system. And regulation is important to a brain and a nervous system. So what we're really doing is we're helping people stay regulated so they can be their best self. And I think when people hear that, some might be like, oh my gosh, that's so much work. I have to do this, I have to do that, I have to do that. Like, can't I just like be who I am in this space? Can't we all just get along? And in some contexts where there are established norms and relationships where people know what to expect within a culture in the context, sure. But that doesn't exist in many places, right? Exactly. And so we have to be very, very intentional about conducting these spaces. And, you know, we're specifically talking about schools, which, you know, as you shared, like, you know, a lot of times people think about, you know, trauma happens to kids outside of school and then they come to school and they're safe. But no, like, well, while that might be the case in some spaces, like, Schools are places that can be and are incredibly traumatizing for both young people who are coming in and the people who work there, like school staff, teachers, administrators, right? School leaders. How do we construct this space to be a place where people are able to regulate, are able to feel safe? And we're not saying that like there's never going to be any kind of conflict or harm and any kind of activation at any time. But like, how can we limit that, mitigate some of those things, proactive, trauma-informed practice, proactive, restorative practices, right? And then address them when, you know, when harm happens. Right. And and we don't want conflict-free spaces. Like we want conflict. All we want to do is, I mean, conflict is what makes us grow, right? That's, it's these adversities that, but, but here's the thing. We want conflict to be dealt with positively. We want stress that can build resilience to be done in the right dose, right? Think dosing. Like if I gave you a, a, a Tylenol right now, that probably isn't gonna hurt you. Might even cure your headache. If I give you five Tylenols right now, that's a little more than you should have. So it probably won't kill you, but it's probably not gonna be good for you, right? If I give you the whole bottle, now we have a problem, right? That's way more than you can take. What if I was doing this daily? Now let's change the dosage to frequency, repetition. How many repetitions will it take for you get hurt? So to give you just one Tylenol today, is that going to hurt you? No. What if I did that every single day? Cumulatively, that's going to start trashing your liver, right? I want you to think of, of dosing as how we think of trauma so that Oftentimes, if a kid comes to school, yeah, a little little bit of this and a little bit of that for stress, not going to hurt him. But if day after day after day, this poor kid's got experience 
walking through a horribly scary neighborhood to get to his school. Because I know kids, I know a school here in Connecticut that at the beginning of school, they ask their teachers and staff to go walk the path kids have to walk to get to school in the morning. Some of those teachers came back, they were terrified. They just had no idea kids had to go through that just to get to school. And so empathy you talked about. Yeah, that's that's the empathy piece. But but those teachers all came back and fully understood now that when a kid comes to school and he's late and he's frazzled, that maybe the kid's not being a bad kid. Maybe he just had a horrible walk to school. And the trauma-informed piece of me is going to be like, wow, wonder what happened to you on your way to school versus, oh, look, Johnny's here to disrupt class again. <laughs> like, what's our mindset? And so when we have that trauma-informed mindset, we can recognize that for many of our kids, the trauma isn't, isn't home, it's school. And this is, this is, of course, being said to you by, you know, I'm, I'm 52 years old now, but for all 12 of my, well, 13 of my school years, I went to Catholic schools as a young, gay, growing youth. And the messaging that I heard was people like me are going to hell. People like me are scary. People like me will hurt your children. But I knew those things weren't me, but that's the message. That was the trauma. The trauma was to go to school every day and listen to my Bible class tell me how horrible of a human I am. But while secretly all those things they're saying about people, well, they were mean. Like, I like other boys. Like, does that make me a bad kid? But that's the messaging at school. So some of my trauma as a kid, it came right from school. It came from hearing that message day after day after day and not being able to question it not being able to fight back on it. And then when it was really uncomfortable and I acted out because of it, teacher wasn't going to say, this was because of Bible class, wasn't it? <laughs> no one's going to say that. They're going to be like, oh, Joe's causing trouble again. <laughs> but we don't, we don't recognize sometimes we set up the circumstances for kids to act. And then we criticize them for how they act in those circumstances. And then we don't acknowledge we created the circumstances. And so that's part of what building a trauma-informed restorative school is about. Let's be really mindful and intentional about the circumstances that we set up for a child so they can be their best self, regardless what's happened to them, regardless what trauma they're experiencing. We, we've set up a space we can hold space for them and hopefully one they can learn in. I like to think about the metaphor of the iceberg when we're talking about like, you know, behaviors that are like displayed that are disruptive, quote unquote, troublesome. I think you've used the phrase like showing that a student or a person is struggling, right? And then what's going on beneath the surface. And we like to think about, you know, the root causes of like their walk to school, what it was, whatever was going on at home. But then like, there's also the water that is surrounding the iceberg. And like, what are the circumstances right, which this kid is, is having to deal with like all of these additional stressors, right? What is the construction of school that is either conducive to, you know, being able to regulate, be able to be safe, or is activating those fight, flight, freeze. You also said faint, which is a new one for me. You know, th there are so many things that go into that. What are these universal precautions 
that people who are doing restorative justice work in school think about when it comes to bringing a trauma lens as well, right? Because the people who are listening already probably have an orientation toward restorative justice and restorative practices. And so you can probably like graze over some of those things, but like when it comes to like those universal precautions of trauma, what does that look like in a school setting? I think it's important for restorative practitioners and educators as well in a school setting to one, the first thing everybody needs to know to be trauma-informed in my eyes is an understanding, even if it's basic, of what we call state-dependent functioning. And that sounds like a fancy old term for, for something, but that's the first, first thing we need to understand is that human beings are state-dependent. And what that means is what is the state of your nervous system? Fight, flight, freeze, faint, flock, feign. I know that was a lot of Fs, wasn't it? You're like, wait, I didn't know there were so many. And so, you know, our, our fight or flight or our flight are our sympathetic nervous system. They are the most basic parts of our nervous system and our stress response. Like we are either ready to fight or run. But along the way, we developed a parasympathetic nervous system. That's actually the other way. So fight or flight mobilizes us where our parasympathetic nervous system, which is freeze and faint, actually immobilize us. And so that's those moments where literally you hear people describe in a life or death situation that they couldn't move, they couldn't scream, they couldn't run, they just, the body becomes paralyzed. And at worst, it's what the, the nervous system is saying to itself is, look, I can't fight this. I can't outrun this. So I might as well prepare for the pain. And so the body floods with natural hormones and painkillers that literally will take a person and have them not feel pain. At worst, it will knock you out, faint. And so easy, easiest way to not feel pain, play dead which is your nervous system's having you play dead. Now, for some people, there's, there's the last two, right? The other two Fs. One of them is what we call fame. People in the past have called, it's basically people-pleasing. It is, or caregiving, befriending the threat. We primarily see this in women and young girls because it's based in a chemical they just seem to have more of called oxytocin. Oxytocin is both a stress hormone and... A, a, a trust hormone. It's, it's the hormone in our systems that allows us to bond and trust each other. It's also the hormone that's involved in pregnancy, lactation, and labor. It, it is what puts women into labor. It's also what allows women to bond with their infant and child as it's born, these levels of oxytocin. And so for some people, including men who also have oxytocin in their system, a response is to feign, strategically feign caretaking to protect us. And you'll see this in children in schools. And so fight, flight, freeze, faint, show up in school. Fight looks like fight, talking back to your teacher, you know, throwing things around, flipping a desk, slamming a locker. These are all forms of fight or literally fighting. Then you have flight behavior in school. That might look like running out of class, which it, it, we, in some schools they call runners, elopers, you know, the kids that just, you know, third grader, it says I'm out of here and, and darts out the door and sometimes right out the front door to home. You know, those can be those behaviors, but it can also be 
headphones, earbuds, things that say, I'm blocking you out right now. I'm literally putting my head down and I'm not listening. Those are flight behaviors too. The hovering student. I always like to have educators aware of the hovering student that could be, you know, the one that's attached to your hip, talking a mile a minute, seemingly making up excuses to talk to you. That could look, that, that also could be flight behavior. Universal precautions are recognizing how we respond to those things and recognizing that any behavior we see could be a stress behavior. And so including, you know, over people pleasing, the, the student that's overly helpful, like that might actually be a stress response. And so things like, again, not touching anybody without permission. School buildings, no sarcasm. One, children in elementary schools and even into middle school are not biologically capable of fully understanding irony or sarcasm. And so using that on a child is not going to be helpful. You'll probably hurt their feelings or just confuse them at best. And so staying away from sarcasm, yelling, there cannot be yelling in a school building unless it's absolutely necessary for something. We can't have adults raising their voice at children. And the reason is simple. What if at home, a raised voice is followed by the police showing up? A raised voice is followed by someone getting hurt. What if a raised voice means they're going to be hurt? You will send that kid right into fight or flight. And so we have to think about what are the things that make sense to change in a school building so that we don't set up the environment where kids are constantly having evocative cues. Like even being as conscious about sensory stuff. So many kids who've been exposed to trauma have sensory disorders that they're either overly sensitive or they're craving sensory stuff. And so either sensory stuff overwhelms them very easily or they, they crave sensory stuff because they're not getting it. We need to be mindful of how we set up our classrooms so that we don't overwhelm the nervous system of a child. Too much sensory stuff to take in will overwhelm their brain. And if you're a kid that's been exposed to trauma, that, that's a lot to take in. And so really being mindful of the clutter in our classrooms, which I know that sounds like a, a goofy thing, but I, I've walked into some classrooms that are like just clutter, like so much stuff that like, how can anybody's brain take it all in? But if you're a brain that's really overloaded with stress, it, just all that sensory stuff is more stuff your brain's got to process. And it can be too much for people. So, you know, universal precautions are not yelling, not using sarcasm, not touching people without permission, decluttering our classrooms, making sure that our curriculums are actually good for all the kids that we're teaching it. Like a great example of that, we, I just had a school where a, a girl was given a book where the main character had her house burned down. That sounds benign enough, right? It's a story about a girl whose house is burning down except the girl they handed this to just had her house burned down. Well, this is not a good idea. You're gonna make her relive her trauma. Like, why, why, one, why would you do that? But two, I bet that was just an oversight. But in a trauma-informed school, we're thinking about that kind of stuff. What's my curriculum? Is it good for all my kids? Is the sensory stuff that I'm doing good for all my kids? Is fluorescent lighting good for my kids? And how am I adding rhythm into my class? Because rhythm calms the nervous system. 
Like, how do we start creating environments where people who've been exposed to tough stuff can, can learn? And not only just learn, but thrive, have social engagement, feel loved and belong. Because just showing up to school and being part of the class doesn't mean that you show up and belong to the class. And so I think being trauma-informed means making sure kids belong and have a sense of belonging versus just fitting in. Yeah, that takes so much time, Joe. How are we going to fit this into all the other things that we've got to do on top of learning loss, on top of this re-socialization back into school, these you hear this all the time. Yeah, I don't have time for this. One, I think, the, you know, I'm going to borrow a line from Ross Green where he says, the only people talking about time are the people just starting the work. Because the rest of us that have been doing this work long enough see that you get all that time back because you're not spending all your time managing, you know, unwanted and unhelpful behaviors. And again, I, I'm a, I stress this over and over. I'm not a guy that believes in behavior management. Like, Managing the kid's behavior is not changing the source and cause of that behavior. And so, you know, really being mindful of the idea that you, you can manage a kid's yelling all the time, but if you don't manage why the kid is yelling, did you really do anything? And so I, I think, again, when we actually put these practices in practice, you get the time back. I'm going to throw one sort of like moral, you know, get on my moral soapbox for a second too, though. What do you mean you don't have time? What's your priority? Your priority has got to be kids. And so when you tell me you don't have time, that you have these other things to do, I'm sorry. What I hear is my priorities as an adult are more important than these priorities of these kids. And that's just not cool. Like, I think our priority in this country needs to be children, and it's not. And I until think, we change uh, that, that's, we're going to always have the social problems that we have. I would say, I think a generous reading of these are my priorities is I want to prepare them for the world as it exists. And you need to be tough out there. You need to be able to navigate X, Y, Z. You need to be able to achieve in the face of all of this adversity in the face of all of this trauma. You just need to push through, get in line, X, Y, Z. Except that's not. Toughening kids up doesn't make them handle the world better. It makes them handle the world worse. And so what we really need to do is start preparing kids for the world we want, not for the world we have. Because unfortunately, the world that you grew up in the world that I grew up in, which is probably longer than you, you know, the, the oldness in me, it, you know, is not the world these kids are growing up in. And it's definitely not the world that they're going to exist and function and succeed in later. It's going to be a different world. Nobody knew, you know, back in 1979, when my dad got his first Radio Shack Tandy computer, I know there's a bunch of Gen Xers out there going, yes, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, you're like, but there, there was the, over here. the yeah. first big computer everybody had was the Radio Shack Tandy color computer. It took these little game cartridges on the side. It was adorable. Um, you know, the internet was CompuServe and there were probably just a handful of people on it. Nobody saw back in 1979 what we see today. TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, social media. 
a constant barrage of world news that our brains were never meant to process. You know, the world that we're going to be in 50 years from now is going to be very different than the world 50 years ago. And so while you're busy trying to prepare kids for the world that exists now, will you be able to prepare them for the world you don't know will exist 50 years from now when they're the ones playing the game? And so trade off trying to toughen them up and instead give them the resiliency skills they need. And by the way, we got science for this now. Like, we don't have to make this up and go, well, let's just do what our forefathers did and the people before us and, and what, what our parents did to us. That's the last thing we should do. What we should be doing is looking at the science, looking at brains. Like, that's why parenting and discipline for children has to change. Away from behaviorism, punishments, rewards, all, all that stuff has to change. Because in the 1990s, we learned about brain science. We created fMRI machines where we could see the brain in real time and learn that, yeah, kind of some of the stuff we were doing for kids, not only does it not work, it hurts kids. Literally, it's hurting them. Yet we keep doing the same old thing exactly under that premise. Well, it's a tough world and we got to show them how tough it is. Yeah, but that doesn't work. <laughs> now, if you give them some skills and some flexibility, uh, yeah, that, that might work. You know, to take a lesson from a palm tree. I know that sounds goofy, right? Palm trees during a hurricane bend, groove, sway, go with the flow. They're the ones that survive. But the ones that get tough and rigid, snap. We gotta start raising our kids to be flexible with flexible nervous systems that can blend their mobilized and immobilized states to be in the sweet spot. Like our stress systems have a sweet spot that's like the optimal point of performance. Like if you have no stress, you'll you'll have no motivation. But if you have just them, if you have too much stress, you, you can't think straight. But if you have just the right, right amount of stress, you'll perform at your best. That's where we need to keep kids, performing at their best. And the only way we can do that is to get adults who know how to do it first. As an adult who has been working with these frameworks for a while, I'm curious about quote-unquote implementation. And I'm going to ask you this on three levels. One, as a human moving through the world, you know, in your interactions with, you know, your, your husband, your friends, your community members, what does this kind of work look like embodied? And then maybe think about a teacher in a classroom and then maybe think about a school leader with their colleagues. I think in my personal life, and, and that one that one's always the hardest, I think, you know, because it's like, you know, sometimes we take our, our, our guard down. You know, we're, you know, I'm doing this work in a school or stuff. Like I'm, I'm in a mind frame. I'm in that state where like, I got to be my best restorative self. But sometimes I get home, I kick off my shoes and I'm like, oh, can just be, you know, I can, I can lay down my guard a little. And that's, that's when my restorative stuff can, can creep out of me. And, and I see this, I want, you know, I, I, I would say the majority of my Facebook feed are other restorative practitioners who I know. And I often see them posting stuff that I'm like, oh. That's that that's just not restorative. Like that, like that's just the whole mindset we're trying to escape. And it creeps into us, right? 
It's because it's embedded in lower parts of our brain since we were really young. So being restorative and trauma-informed is like a full-time job like because all that other stuff is so embedded in us, almost like the same way we talk about implicit bias. We have implicit biases about behavior and, and who deserves what and punishments and rewards and wanting punishment and seeing other people not deserving of things because, well, they don't deserve that. They're a terrible person. You know, they're a Trumper. They're a, they're a Democrat. They're a this or that. Like we fall into our labels. So I think in a personal setting, and at least very personal for me, it's trying to see my family and friends who might not think like me to not lose sight of their humanity, to not write them off and think of people as disposable because I don't like the way they think or who they voted for. And, and I'm guilty of this, like totally. And, and so as I've tried to get deeper into the work, it's me trying to prevent myself from writing people off because I don't, because I disagree with their, something that they believe and noticing, well, that's their stuff. And this is my stuff. And we can coexist and believe different things. And that I have a better chance of changing your worldview if I have a relationship with you than if I wrote you off. And so in my personal life, even for me and my husband, and you know, it's about having honest conversations it's about circling up in our own little way. Like sometimes we circle up, like we sit down and we have the tough conversations. And, and that's be, it's because of this work for me. I also think, you know, on, on the school level, as you get to that next level up, what does this look like? I think having that restorative trauma-informed space for educators is really having educators see behavior as a product of our nervous systems and not necessarily conscious choice. And so you often hear educators, and, and even in our personal relationships, we think that people just choose the things they do. And while that's not inaccurate, it's also not accurate, right? Your brain is not designed to think before you act. It sounds great on paper, sounds great for us to say, but the reality is different. You're, you're wired to act before you think. I mean, hopefully if I throw a, a tennis ball at your head, you're just going to duck. You're not going to think, oh, I should duck right now. <laughs> It'll hit you by then. Like there's some things that are just reflexive. And for a lot of our responses, our nervous system is playing more of a role in us than we think we are. You don't have control of your life the way you think you do. Once you've recognized that for yourself, now you've got to start recognizing that for other people. That sometimes we do blurt out stuff that we didn't really mean to say. Sometimes we say things and it's not what we intended to say. Sometimes we do things we just couldn't stop ourselves from doing. And, and so I'll give and that you doesn't absolve us of responsibility. No, right? absolutely not. But I think when, when we're truly being restorative, we're putting on that lens to look at other people's behavior and saying, you know, Ross Green, right? Kids do well if they can. Well, what if we said that for adults too? Like, what if we just said people are doing the best they can in the circumstances they're in? But for people who've been exposed to trauma, going into fight or flight or losing access to the higher order thinking that makes us our best selves, sometimes that stuff just disappears. Not because we want it to, but because there are more threats around us in our because of our history. And so we respond to things as if it's a threat when it isn't. I always tell the people that 
trauma has changed my life in a way that I see red flags where they don't exist. And sometimes I don't see the red flags that do. And so I end up in situations that are not exactly safe, but I didn't see any red flags because, well, I'm kind of used to like violent, crazy things happening. And so I, I think when we start to understand those pieces about humans, then when we circle up to hold someone accountable, we're not just holding you accountable. We have grace. We yeah, can offer grace. Like, I love that word grace. Like, we can offer grace while we do accountability. Like, can we define yes, that? I'm holding accountable. Grace? Oh, no, accountability. Accountability. So I, I'm a huge fan of Kay Prinus and Carolyn Boyce Watson's approach to that about accountability having those five dimensions so if i'm sure a lot of your listeners you know if you're if you're all a bunch of restorative practitioners you probably have seen this this accountability model that says you got to own that you've caused harm you got to know who you harmed and in what ways you got to repair that harm you got to repay your community and you got to assure us this isn't going to happen again five dimensions none of them have anything to do with inflicting suffering on anyone because that would be, well, that would be punishment, which I'm sorry, punishment for me is defined as the intentional infliction of suffering on someone else. I don't see how that definition is any different than violence. So I definitely see punishment as a form of violence. And so accountability for me is 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 owning, it. it, it is those things, it's those dimensions. It's more than just owning your actions. It's repairing them to the best you can. And really, I think that one about assuring people that it won't happen again by you or anyone else, that's also part of this picture. And I think we're so programmed in our culture that accountability equals punishment and suffering, that when we don't see someone suffer for causing harm, we think they got off you know, with a hug. To which I would say, well, what's wrong with that? <laughs> you know. And, and so, yeah, for, I, I think for me that those dimensions of accountability are what I've really, I, I kind of, uh, those have really formed what it means to be accountable for me. Right. And so when we bring that back into a school context where we are asking people to take on those five dimensions, like we're also holding space for grace. And I don't know if you want to contextualize grace, but, you know, people make mistakes. I make mistakes. And when we make mistakes, we do better. We don't get bogged down in like, I did a bad thing. I'm a bad person. I guess if I'm a bad person, I'm going to keep doing these bad things that are harmful to myself to my community, right? There is this invitation back into belonging, back into community. In a podcast that I was listening to you on before, you talked about this school in India where you were on this trip with some westernized educators in this school rooted in Jainism. And one of your colleagues asked the, the instructors, they're like, you know, but what do you do with like the really, really bad kids, the kids who quote unquote bad kids, of course, right? But like the kids who just like aren't like up for doing this. What was the response? That's funny because the second as you're describing that, I'm like in my brain, I'm back in that same room with that circle all sitting on this big mat. And uh, yeah, one of my colleagues that was on the tour with us, you know, it was this, it was sponsored by the International School of Jane Studies and it's studied based in Jainism, which if your listeners don't know about Jainism, it has a very, very strict tenet of nonviolence. And so punishing children would be considered nonviolence. I mean, it would be considered violence and, and therefore it would accumulate karma. And so it's not just about being, you know, not being violent. It's, it's about not accumulating karma. And so 
you know, we pushed a little, like, come on, you know, you lose your temper and send that kid out of class, or, you know, you lose your temper during give that kid a suspension. Like, how do you handle the really big stuff? And, and this, this, this Indian teacher looked at us and she's like, oh, so for those kids, we bring them to the front of the room. So everyone in the class can remind them how loved they are. Silence in the room was just like, whoa, whoa. And, and much of that silence was just filled with like tears. It's but like definitely for me, like I thinking back on it, it like chokes me up. It's like, there's this moment in time where like, she's like, the answer to that question isn't to get rid of the kid. The answer is to bring that kid in and say, wait, you're loved. That we can separate out a person from the things they're doing. To say, maybe these things you're doing are not even what you want to be doing, but you, you're still good. And if you look at sort of like, you know, circle forward, Kay Pranis and Carolyn Boys Watson, and, and they're sort of like the assumptions, key assumptions about restorative practices, right? That we, we're all good and wise, that, you know, we, we all have strengths and, and things to offer. Like if, if we can hold those tenets the way these teachers in India were holding them, what amazed everyone in the room is that this was just a way of life for them. Like they were, it was the reaction of all of us going, oh, oh my God, those Indian teachers were looking at us like we were crazy. Like, what do you, like, why would you do something else? Like they were sort of appalled that we even asked the question. <laughs> and that's the part of it that made me go, oh, wow. Like they're, they're really shocked at us right now. We're all shocked at their answer. And they're shocked we even asked this question. And, and that was like the big take home for me, this idea that this really can be embedded in your system to look at a child and say, I don't like what you're doing, but I love you. And that's not the messaging. It's not the language we use with kids. Even if it's not the words we use with kids in schools right now, it's just our attitude and our body language tell a kid, I don't like you. Versus, wow, you, you, you must have been really stressed out when you hit the other kid. Are you okay? Yes, I'm going to hold you accountable for hitting that other kid, but let's start with you. Are you okay? You just got into a fight. You just had your entire nervous system engaged. Are you okay? But that's what principal, what educator is asking that question. They're not. They say, oh, David, this is the seventh fight you've been in this month. You know, we, we're, not, we're not wrapping our arms around these kids and saying, look, for you to act like that, you must have really been hurting. And so which kid do you want to see? The hurting kid that just acted out or the bad kid that did something you shouldn't? The rule breaker or the kid that's struggling? And unfortunately, even some of the most restorative folks I know, they're not showing up. They're not showing up like those Jane teachers that say, we're going to take that kid to the side of the room and tell you I love you. I think that's like a, a good like segue into like the like broader scale, scale implementation, right? Because it is the culture or the system under which we're operating in that doesn't allow us to zoom out and think about that, right? Because like, oh, end yeah. of the class period, I've got to get through this content or or else, right? So it's easier to just send this kid out, right? Or like, hey, we only have half an hour to do this circle. We can't get to the, a resolution by the end of the circle, right? Like, you know, what, what's going on? And I, you know, giving grace for people's situations, but, you know, we do have to set this long-term commitment to like, 
in some instances, working outside of like the systems and structures as they exist, right? Because they're not necessarily conducive to seeing each other as human, yeah. seeing ourselves as human, right? And school leaders, right, have an amazing ability to change those systems, right? Allocate time for these things very intentionally, right? What we talked earlier about like, you know, what are the things that you need to proactively do to build those relationships where they exist, create the conditions where these relationships can thrive, where people will, you know, have the resources, not just like time, financial, like, yeah, do you have a calm corner, but like the interpersonal resources, right? The tools within themselves for regulation to be able to navigate conflict and harm in, in those moments. And it's not a hit it and quit it training, like, hey, half hour, hour, two hours <laughs> yeah. of trauma, informed trauma insensitive or restorative justice. You know, it is it is a years long commitment. And I think like it's helpful to frame that when people in school specifically think about like, oh, it's not just this year of implementation, but you know, people say like, oh, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Marathons have ends, 26.2 miles, right? I've done it, <laughs> yeah. I've been there. <laughs> but this work, this work is ongoing. And in the scope of, you know, the last 50 years, the next 50 years, uh, before we were got on, I think we talked about like this diffusion model of like innovators, early adapters, early majority, late majority, laggards. Like, where do you think we are in this trajectory of, I think, like restorative justice, trauma informed, and like maybe even like the intersection of the two? Yeah, that's such an amazing question because I, I honestly, even though I know that model really well, I talk about it all the time. And, and you know, I, I first learned about that model from Simon Sinek's talk, TED Talk on the power of why. And so I, I love that that model. Like, but but I, I guess at this point in time, I'll give us a little more credit than than I think it's it's I don't think it's that linear, right? Mm-hmm. It's not that we're like right now we're at the innovator stage or the early adopter stage. We have all of that going on, right? And so what? There was an article in the New York Post yesterday, day before, slam, again, slamming restorative practice is as, you know, the quote unquote hug a thug, which I mm-hmm. hate that term, but I, I, I hear it. How often do we hear that term popping up that, you know, we're just going to give kids hugs in a conversation and that's accountability. Well, Actually, one, sometimes that is accountability. What was the conversation? There's nothing wrong with that. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with that. As long as everybody walking away feels like justice just happened, then then a hug is awesome. So we have our laggards out there. And, And remember, in that model, there are two kinds of laggards, right? There are situational and persistent. And your persistent ones aren't coming on board with you. These are the same people that are at the school board meeting protesting restorative practices, critical race theory, and equity work being done in schools. They're not coming on board with you. They're going to keep on fighting. And those folks have been around for decades. But at the same time, we do have the early adopters that are taking restorative justice and trauma-informed to the next level at every turn they can. I love those people because they show up to awesome conferences and tell us what they're doing and what they're learning. And then the rest of us get to be the early adopters for what those innovators are teaching us. And then you're always going to have your early majority, the people that you told this stuff to, and they just did it because they're like, yes, this is a good idea. I'm on board. Then there's this group of people who's probably where the majority of us are living right now, right? Or what we call the, the, the late majority. 
These are the people that are going to come on board with you. They're going to get trauma-informed and restorative. They're just waiting to see how it rolls. Right? They want to see how this turns out for everybody else before they invest their time into it. But but I think my messaging for all of those folks would be like, you can't outrun this, right? This work is continuing on the path that it is because of the science. This is applied educational neuroscience. And restorative happens to be a really good fit in that neuroscience. Like there's the Nathan Wallace, is that his name? Out of, I think you believe he's out of Australia, wrote a chapter in Mark Thorsborn's last book, Getting More Out of Restorative Practices. I don't know if any of you have seen that book. It's a great book. And of course, I'm a huge Mark Thorsborn fan whose birthday was yesterday. So shout out to Mark Thorsborn, but also my editor and, and, and co-author on my book. You know, we, we are, we're at this stage where more of us are just waiting to take on the work because we want to see it's going to stick around. Because, you know, educators are used to educational fads that come and go. You know, some have stuck around longer than they should, like PBIS and, you know. Whole other conversation. Yeah, whole other conversation. And so many restorative folks who believe that restorative that restorative can be blended with PBIS, which I that, that's literally a whole other podcast that, like, that that thinking has got to go. Behaviorism has got to go. If we're really going to truly be trauma-informed, we've got to stop thinking in those terms of carrots and sticks. But and, and the idea that you could just you know reward kids and they'll behave the way that they want—that's neither equitable or, or or healthy. But we're at that phase, right? We got this late majority who are just waiting to come on board. They see it's a good idea, but they just want to roll it out before they invest. At the same time, we have our early adopters, we have our innovators who are taking this to new levels all the time. Go to any restorative justice conference, any trauma-informed schools conference, and you will watch those, you know, innovators giving us new tools at every step. You know, they're the ones publishing the books. They're the ones doing the conferences. They are the James Moffitts, Matthew Portels, Kay Pranis. These are early adopters and innovators that have been leading the way for us. And then we do have our laggards that are going to fight us. We've got those laggards that if we listen to them, and their concerns, they'll come on board and be our cheerleaders, big cheerleaders, if we took the time to implement this work through the same lens that is this work. You gotta listen to people that don't believe in you. You gotta listen to people that don't agree with you. And you gotta take on their point of view for a minute to see if maybe their concerns are valid and could be addressed. Some people think that restorative justice is just letting people off the hook. That is a valid concern. You don't want people being left off the hook. I could totally empathize with that concern and I can address it. So if I listen to your concern and let you feel heard about it, will you then come on board when I address it? Good chance. And so that, def- that, that model is not so, I don't think we are at any one point in that diffusion model. I think we're at all those points. I think there's just different percentages of us that are that are coming on board. And the place we got to put our energy is that late majority. The people who want to come on board but are just waiting it out, now nah, we need to pull those people in close and, and get them on board faster. Mm-hmm. I have no idea how to do that, but I'm working on it. <laughs> I mean, and it's, not, and it's not all on you, right? There is, yeah, no, totally. there is lots of work to be shared across so many of us who who believe this work to be to be true and what it 
what this world needs. I, I'm hopeful in some ways and some days it's like really hard. I know from listening to other conversations you've had that we have people in or speaking at least to people at the highest office in the land yeah. about, you know, how this work is so important and so vital. And, you know, I think about like, while there are people like you and I, like the folks that you rattled off and so many others, previous guests on this podcast as well, right? About like, you know, how we're pushing this work forward in so many ways. In teacher education, this still isn't really, really being taught. And so I, th I think like there are two sides of the question and this is poorly constructed as far as like an interview goes, but I'm wondering <laughs> if you could speak to like, you know, the the large scale application or implementation of this work, maybe at a federal level. And then like, you know, what you hope for people who are coming into education and people who are teacher educators, teacher, people who are teaching, training teachers, how they can approach this. I think, you know, first off, you're, you're, you're totally right about our highest leadership. Like we, we have Miguel Cardona, who I, I not only only call like one of my heroes in, in this work, um, I, I believe in him. He's done this work with me. Like Miguel Cardona is not just our secretary of education who has some experiences with trauma-informed restorative practices. Like I worked with Miguel Cardona for almost five years in his school district when he was the assistant superintendent to implement and, and plan how we were going to do this work in his four secondary schools, in Meriden public schools. I learned more about the politics of school systems and how to make change happen at a board of, of education. You know, how do you go to the board of education and make change? And, and, and how do the politics of all that work, which I have to admit, I'm not really good at politics, but, but you know, Dr. Cardona was. And so I learned a ton, but to know that our, you know, we have a secretary of education who's a former educator, a former classroom teacher, a principal, assistant superintendent, commissioner of schools, who also believes in doing this work, but who also knows how to get stuff done. That makes me super, super optimistic. And, and, and so, you know, I think on the big, the big scale, I can't totally figure out where we're going. I, I think many of our teacher prep programs are taking this on. That is happening absolutely happening. Eastern Mennonite University, Vermont Law School, like you can go out there and get master's degrees in both trauma-informed and both and restorative justice. And now Eastern Mennonite University is going to combine their trauma-informed certificate and master's program with their restorative justice program so that you get one degree in both. And so I think we are going in this direction in teacher prep programs. I know that I I know only because people have told me that my book is being used in a few teacher prep programs to help leaders understand school culture in a, in a new way. And so I'm, I'm hopeful about all of that stuff. I really am probably more hopeful than I've ever been. At the same time, we're in a position right now where we are just seeing people leave. You know, we know that right after this, since this pandemic, over 500,000 educators have left the field. And they're claiming the reason why, and that comes from a, a study by the NEA, you know, they're, they're saying the reason is because teachers are just undervalued, overworked, treated poorly, expected to become 
therapists, counselors, moms, chefs, snack havens, and be masters of escaping gun violence. Like, uh, how much more could we ask of these people and, and not even pay them enough? And so, you know, with a double-edged sword of, of how we get to go forward, like, it, it seems like we could make lots of change. We just aren't valuing, again, we're not prioritizing the stuff we should be prioritizing, which are our children. We just, we love to say it, that we're prioritizing children, but then I don't see the legislation and the policy that follows. I am hopeful looking at what I see our current Department of Education, and I don't want to make that a Democrat-Republican thing because it's bipartisan. I feel hopeful about what I see from our current Department of Education and the work of Miguel Cardona, not only because I know him as a friend, but 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 as, as an educator, I, I know, I mean, I've had many conversations with him about trauma, about restorative practices, about how we help kids, about equity. I believe this guy can do something amazing for us if if we support him. And so whether you're a Democrat or Republican and independent, whatever party you might belong to, we have an act. If you work in education, you have an educator leading us. Like, I don't know how we could ask for more. Like, really? And, and I mean, I suppose we could ask for more. Like, please pay teachers. <laughs> So, you know, there's the that. start. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. There's that, but you know, at, at, at the end of the day, I, I feel hopeful. I really do. And, and, and I guess for for many of us in this field, and and I know many practitioners who I talk to can can relate to this statement. It's like for some of us, we couldn't leave this field if we wanted to, right? I always joke to myself, and I'm gonna say, I'm just gonna go get a job at a Walmart, like, and and. I don't know, gather the shopping carts from the p- parking lot and, you know, just something where I don't have to think too much. But I, we all know it. I couldn't do that if I wanted to. And neither could so many people that are doing this work. We couldn't walk away from this work if we tried to because there's this compulsive feeling like this is what we're supposed to be doing, so we're doing it. And, you know, I hope that we end up with more people who have that compulsion. I want to make sure that we have time for you to answer all the questions that everybody answers when they come on at the end of the pod. But I want to make sure that we plug your book one more time and we'll do it again at the end. Building trauma-informed restorative, building a trauma-informed restorative school. Get it where all books are sold, but as always, the link to the bookshop where you can buy it from a local independent bookstore is what will be linked in the show notes. We've already asked you to share your definition of restorative justice or the way that you conceptualize it. So I'm going to ask you for an oh shit moment in doing this work, a moment where you messed up or you made a decision to like, ooh, I wish I had that back. And then what did you learn from it? Oh, geez. There's been so many of those. I, I think early on in this work, I, I'll tell you, I, I'll tell you my one, my one moment that that I, I still I, I still think about this moment often. That I was very early on in this work, and I had a principal of a school basically give me free roam of her school. She's like, "Do whatever you need to do. I believe in this work. Just do what you got to do." And I'd been asked to circle up this group of of fourth grade girls that had been you know at each other you know for a while and and find out what they were. It was either fourth or fifth grade, and you know I had to walk down to that classroom and grab those girls and bring them to a room where we can circle them all up. And, and I was with another 
you know, person who was going to co co lead the circle with me. Cause I very often have people with me that are training in, in the work. And so I had somebody training in the work with me and I, I was like, and we're walking down the hallway and I see this really tall, he's not even a, a principal or he was an intern to be an administrator. And he had this little like second or third grade boy who's literally like a quarter of the size of him. And he's just, you know, doing this with the finger pointing, just towering over this child and the kids, you know, crying. And, and he, he looked, and as I walked by, I heard him say, you look at your teacher when you apologize. And in that second, all I wanted to do was pull that kid away from those adults. Cause nothing about that was anything short than abusive power. He wasn't learning anything. They were just trying to get him to be a com obedient, compliant little kid and shaming him all along. And I wanted nothing more than, a, than to interrupt that. And I did not. I kept walking. And to this day, it has been, God, 12 plus years since that happened. And I probably think about that at least once a week. Mm -hmm. Like, why deny it? But it's also shaped how I walk forward with this work. And so a lot of educators and principals who worked with me and superintendents know I'm, I'm not going to hold back on people now. If you're doing stuff that I think is hurting kids, I'm going to bring it to your attention. I'm willing to be wrong about what I'm pointing out, but I'm going to point it out. And the reason I think I drive that way is because I remember that little kid's face. <laughs> I remember how sad and defeated he looked and no little child should look that way. That's not learning. That's just abuse. And, and you know, you're talking to a child abuse survivor. I, I don't, I just don't think we need to do that to children to make them better humans. In fact, I think that kind of stuff makes them worse. So my, I think that's my big moment. I probably have about 50 more, <laughs> but that is definitely the one that, that I, I, I'm not lying at all. When I, when I say, I think of that little kid about once a week or so, that's probably, it's usually cause I'm off doing the work and I get tested of like, all right, do I say something or do I shut up? And I always think, well, there's that one time, Joe, where you didn't say something and you should have. And so that, that I think was that, that was like a pivotal moment for like how I do the work. You know, just like, and, and if I literally, if I could time travel back <laughs> and just like intervene in that moment to be like, you adult, you need to go get regulated and step away from the kid. And little kid, you need just a hug. Whatever you did, did not warrant that treatment. And, and what can a third grader possibly do that would warrant that kind of like dehumanizing, shaming nonsense? Yeah. All right. I'll get off that soapbox. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. And I think it's just a, a, a reminder for folks, like even in a system, even in a space where you don't have all the levers of power and control, like you get to make those like moment by moment decisions that are more human, right? Forget trauma informed, forget restorative, forget all this, like what is the thing that is affirming somebody's humanity in this moment? It doesn't require big fancy terms like trauma responsive, which, you know, we all want you to embrace, right? But 
you have the ability to make massive change in, in just those moments. This question is a little bit, maybe equally as difficult, but in a different way. You get to sit in circle with four people that are alive. Who are they? And what is the one question you ask that circle? So I am twice the survivor of violent crime. In both of those incidents, the people that were involved were not caught. And so there, there will be no justice because there can't be. There can't be accountability because we don't even know who those people are. And, and so I've literally, as I do this work and I talk about being the, the victim of two violent hate crimes, in the very first hate crime, which happened in 1989, 1990, I still wonder about that because literally my memory of those things is pretty trash. <laughs> so, but I look back and, and, and the memory of the event is pretty clear, at least that one. And during that event, I had, I had cash on me. I had lots of cash on me. It was not touched. I had the keys to a 1986 Pontiac Firebird, which at the time was only a few years old. Let's keep in mind because, you know. I was, I'm old, but yet they took a ring off my finger. And so I've always had this fantasy that, that, that someday someone's going to come back to me as I'm doing this work and say, do you recognize this ring? And so I think if I was going to circle up people, it would be those people. It would be the people that took the ring. It would be the people that, you know, 10 years after that bashed me again. I, I just want to sit down. And, and I think my question for all of them would be, tell me a time you got hurt. Because then I could at least humanize them in my head. And as you can tell, I actually have sort of like invested some thought into what that conversation would sound like and look like. And, you know, I never spent too much time on it because it's probably not healthy. But once in a blue moon, I've, I've fantasized. I'm like, what if I got to sit down with them all and just circle up past this talking piece? Like I've done with so many times for other people. And... I've watched other people do it. Wouldn't it be amazing if, if I had that opportunity? What if somebody just showed up and, and said, Joe, do you recognize this ring? Because I, I know what my ring looked like. Uh, I, would, I would know. And, and if you have it, there's only one way you got it. And so <laughs> you took it from my hand. And so there's the, I think that would be my four people. I don't know if that's what other people's answers are. I'm sure they pick celebrities and family members. And, but for me, I think it would be I think it would be the people that hurt me. Thank you for sharing that. What's one thing of monster affirmation you want everyone listening to know? Wow, that's a really hard question. I mean, that's just, wow. I really do think it sounds like such a cheesy little thing to say to people, but everybody really is doing the best they can in the moment they're in with the skills and tools they have with the nervous system they've, they've been given. And so sometimes I think grace, grace is everything. Just giving people grace, no matter who they are, or what they've done. There's, there's good in everyone, even when it's so hard to see. And so I, I think that would be it. Everybody's really doing the best they can, even when it doesn't look like that. You'd be surprised when people have been through a lot, the best they can doesn't look like much. But for some people, it's legit the best they could give you. And so I wish we could see that more often in people. I just want to slide in there, grace for yourself as well. That's you. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm horrible at offering that to myself. <laughs> working on that. Definitely working on that. Beautiful. Who's one person that I should have on this podcast? And bonus points if you can help me get them on. 
I could list a ton, but but who I'll say right now, Bruce Perry. I can't help you get Bruce Perry on the podcast, but I, I, or I don't think I could. But Bruce Perry is probably my top choice. I love listening to Bruce Perry talk. But also, you know who I, I think has been really amazing and, and uh, not necessarily falling into like the restorative justice category or the trauma-informed category, but someone who speaks out against punishment in ways I've never seen anyone do is Stacey Patton. Like I'm just a like bait. I'm a big Dr. Stacy Patton fan. But if you don't know who that is, she wrote a book called Spare the Kids, which really the the subline of that book is why whooping whooping children won't save black women. So she really wrote this book for black parents to really understand the history of how mm-hmm. black parenting got to be so harsh. Yeah. And but but she really calls out white European just the cruelty and history of white European parenting. I mean, there was a time like in the Middle Ages where where children were put in stockades for public ridicule for talking back to their parents. Like white parenting is created. Her premise in her book, which I, I just think is powerful, is that white parenting paved the way to have children who lacked empathy as adults who could easily buy and sell other human beings and dehumanize others. And that that black parents had to take on this harsh style of parenting that they learned from white European settlers and, and you know, Puritans, like she just spells out the history and the way she does it. It's really just, it's just the facts. Like you can't really, like she presents the facts and the facts are pretty hard to argue with. And she does it with a sense of humor that is, interesting i think she has an amazing sense of humor but but just something about the way she speaks to both abusive parenting from white parents and black parents and she's not pointing a finger and blaming anybody she says this is the facts and we could change it but it still exists today we you know she points it out in her book we celebrate when we see parents beating their children like yeah that kid deserved it you know that'll teach them blah blah when none of that stuff is true you know, hitting your children is 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 it, it, like end of the story. Bad for kids. It's like argue like I, at this point, trying to argue in favor of hitting a child is like flat Earth theory. It's probably not trauma informed. And so, in order to be truly trauma informed, you need restorative justice. But in order to be truly restorative, you need trauma informed. Like these two things can't be separate anymore. And I don't know how to, I don't know who needs to hear that message loud enough, but that, that is definitely the message that I want people to hear. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. So I look forward to getting connected with some of the latter people that you mentioned, and then <laughs> we will aspirationally reach for some of the, the, the first two. And just so you can say in your own words, where and how can people support you and your work in the ways that you want to be supported? The, you can always find me at my website, which is just my name, joebrummer.com. If, if you do get a chance to read my book, I always tell people to buy it from a local independent bookstore. An LGBT-owned or Black-owned business would be my favorite. If you do buy it from those folks, just go sneak over to Amazon and write a nice review. Because that is kind of how books sell in this world, is that Amazon does make an impact on what sells and what doesn't sell. And so having people write reviews on my book is is really helpful. And, and so far I feel blessed that the reviews mostly out there, exceptions of one or two have been really, really positive. And so, yeah, that's one way to support it. Yeah, buy that book. And, and if you've already read the book and you love it, buy a copy for an educator you know. 
Beautiful. Links to do all of that, both your website and purchase that book in the show notes. Joe, thank you so much for spending your afternoon with us on this restorative justice life. For everyone else listening, we'll be back with another conversation with someone living this restorative justice life next week. Until then, take care. Thank you, Joe, for all you had to offer this episode. One idea that really stuck out to me was trauma-informed practices. Joe emphasized that trauma-informed practices are essential to restorative justice, and restorative justice is inherently trauma-informed. I think this is an important thing to consider as we think about how we're learning about restorative justice. It is a trauma-informed practice, and when we're thinking about trauma, we are experiencing it on the personal level, the interpersonal level, and then also at the societal level, and we have to address each layer of trauma um, individually to really have a truly restorative outcome. I also appreciated the fact that Joe put a lot of emphasis on young people. In the podcast, he said, I think our priority in this country needs to be children, and it's not going to change unless we are able to solve the social problems that we have. Advocacy and activism is for our children, is for the young people out there, and there are a lot of young people doing activism right now, and it's important to amplify that work with the platforms that older folks may have. As always, thank you so much for listening to this podcast, and I'll talk to you next week. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast on whatever platform you're using right now. Or if you're old school, tell a friend. It really helps us further amplify this work. You can also support us by following us on our social platforms, signing up for our email list, signing up for a community gathering, workshop, or course. So many options! Links to everything in the show notes or on our website, amplifyrj.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week.